somebody? It's a GIF? Okay. Well, some of the kids said GIF, and I'm inclined to think they may be cooler. Uh, oh, it's GIF. Okay, one kid. Okay, it's GIF. Carson's not here to give us a definitive. Um, so I saw a GIF, and it was like 2020. And there was a guy coming downstairs, and it said January. And the guy was coming downstairs, and he was doing this. And then February, and the guy was like, do, 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 do. And then March, and the guy started, and then he just bit it. And he just fell straight down the stairs. And I was like, yeah, that is about right. That's awesome. <laughs> you got to laugh instead of cry. Um, well, let's pray, and then let's jump in. God, thanks for this morning, thanks for this evening, thanks for your word. Uh, please edify us this evening and over the course of the next, uh, including tonight, 14 weeks. Father, may we have clarity on what it means to be a man and a woman in a world where there is increasing confusion about that. And more than simply having clarity on it, may we embody the good and gracious gift that you've given to us of our gender and sexuality, and may we live out biblical manhood and womanhood in our homes and in our church and in the society, which will be for our good and will be for human flourishing, and it will bring you glory. So we thank you, Father, for this good gift that you've given to us of maleness and femaleness. And I ask that this time together would be instructive and edifying for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We did start this, of course, in January 2020. had to be stopped. So we're just going to pick up at the very beginning because who remembers what happens in January? Nobody. So we're going to start and we're just going to pick it up. And we're going to go. So let me start. And if you don't have one of these, go ahead and grab it. Uh, and each time, to just refresh your memory, uh, each time there's going to be a couple of resource suggestions. This is the same as it was initially. However, I've added a book that I suggested. And I want to go ahead and highlight it. It's called That Hideous Strength by Melvin Tinker, How the West Was Lost, the Cancer of Cultural Marxism in the Church, the World, and the Gospel of Change. That's a small book, but a very insightful book that caught my attention because it was blurbed and recommended by both David Wells and Carl Truman. If you know anything about those two men, they're very, very, very respected church historians. Very respected, not lightweights. And they... They suggested the book. I picked it up. It's, it's just a hair over 100 pages. It's small. And you hear the term cultural Marxism thrown around these days. It's kind of very confusing. I've been trying to wrap my mind around it to understand really what's going on here. And I found that book to be very helpful. And you might too. And it's actually appropriate to biblical manhood and womanhood, actually, uh, in, in what they talk about. It's very, very appropriate to our cultural moment in its entirety, and it's, but it's appropriate to manhood, biblical manhood and womanhood. So I blurbed that for you there, and if you're interested in that, you can pick that up. Well, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? On one level, these might seem like simple questions, sorts of questions you learned in 
uh, high school biology class, but in another level, they are loaded questions because we live in a day when many people dispute that your physical sex has any necessary connection to what they might call your gender identity, your sense of how masculine or feminine you are. Consequently, you know this, the sign of saying boys or girls on the school bathroom has become the symbol of one of our era's greatest controversies. Doesn't that seem just wild? But you know it's the case. And it's even, it almost seems passe when I say it at this point. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that is really, really, you know, uh, a controversy. And we're just kind of used to the controversy already over the reality that, you know, it's controversial to say boys and girls. But even beyond the question of our physical bodies, We've also got to wrestle with the lightning rod debate on whether men and women are in some way wired differently. At least in the past, there were significant, uh, there were different expectations embedded in the cultural fabric for how men and women behave, how they dress, what jobs they work. Now, well, we live in something of a transitional age, I think. Uh, today, feminist gurus tell women to break the glass ceiling, sit at the head of the boardroom, all while raising perfectly balanced, college-bound kids on a diet of organic mac and cheese and kale. Men are told to get in touch with their feminine side. Popular TV shows such as Orange is the New Black and Transparent suggest that gender can be fluid and, tra and traditional gender roles can be abandoned. But... The ads in between the shows still depend on and perpetuate traditional gender stereotypes. Pickup trucks are driven by men. Think of those good Ford commercials that you're going to see if you watch football beginning now. And the Febreze is sprayed on the couches by women. So, there you have it. Here's my point. In our culture, it is not easy to answer my two opening questions. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And many protest what those questions, uh, many protests that those questions themselves are hopelessly outdated, even offensive, even oppressive. And our world is rightly out, outraged by ongoing harassment, abuse, and violence committed between the genders, especially by men against women, from Hollywood studios to gymnastics, uh, medical officers. People are asking if men can be trusted anymore. Is there a vision of gender that is actually good for human flourishing? That's what we're going to look at as we turn to God's Word over the next 14 weeks to understand His good will and design for us. So, we're going to start by just turning to some preliminaries as we begin in this class. First, let me explain how I'm using the word gender. As I've mentioned, some today differentiate between sex and gender, arguing that sex is only biological while gender refers to cultural, psychological, and behavioral aspects of masculinity and femininity. What I want to argue in this class is that gender is a more comprehensive category. It includes the sex of our bodies, so gender is not less than sex, but it also extends to the dispositions that God has designed us to have as men and women. So, I'm using gender to refer to both sexual differenti differentiation and the dispositions and roles that God has given to us. Okay? Yes, 
Some expressions of gender are merely cultural, not in the Bible, not part of God's good design. For example, dressing baby boys in blue and girls in pink. But there are some facets of gender that are innate to how God has made us, and we will be exploring that in the coming weeks. Now, a word as to methodology. We are going to rely, as you would expect, I hope, on the sufficiency of Scripture. This doctrine teaches that not only is the Bible authoritative and completely true, it also contains all that we need to guide and instruct us in a life that honors God. Paul told Timothy that Scripture equips the man of God for, quote, every good work. So, the plan in this class is to be clear where Scripture scripture is clear, to be more guarded where Scripture isn't clear, and to engage charitably and lovingly at all times. And what we're going to see on the topic of gender is that sometimes the Bible is prescriptive. You guys know this if you've been here the last couple of weeks, right? Prescriptive describes particular roles and stewardships for men and women in certain relationships and contexts. Where Scripture is prescriptive, our duty is to obey. At other times, the Bible is mostly descriptive. It simply describes, depicts, and portrays men and women how God created us, but there may not be exactly a command for us to obey or a prohibition to follow. But even in these passages, Scripture is a sufficient guide. We just need wisdom in figuring out how we can best live in light of the patterns and principles we see and integrate them into our lives in light of the whole of Scripture. So let me say, too, that because God gives the gift of gender to every person he's created, the truths that we're going to discuss are relevant for you in any conceivable life stage. You can look at the course outline on the back, on the handout, and you can see the various topics we're going to address. But each week, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're an employee or a boss, a church member, a deacon, a deaconess, an elder, what we're talking about in this class should have implications for you, though these implications will look different depending on the relationships and stewardships that God has given you. So, what we want to do today is set up the rest of the course by outlining a biblical theology of gender. So we're going to walk through the major chapters of the Bible's overall storyline, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, survey what it means to be created male and female, and you could consider this the view from the top of Mount Everest before we climb down in the upcoming weeks to take a look at the details along the trail. So let's begin our brief biblical overview, starting at creation. We're going to spend most of our time here because God's created design is so foundational to the whole topic of gender. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. God creates the heavens and the earth. We learn in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void. The first three days are forming, so God makes and separates light from darkness, water from sky, land from water. First three days, forming. The next three days are filling. God fills the heavens with lights. He fills the waters and the seas with fish and birds, fills the land with creatures. And then the text climaxes in 26 through 28. I'm going to read 26 through 28. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 31 says this. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Gender, that is, maleness and femaleness, is God's idea. And he is infinitely wise. Therefore, gender is part of the beauty of his immaculate and perfect design. Please just lock that down in your minds and hearts. Because gender is part of God's design, because God is perfect, because God designed the world as it should be. Gender, sexuality, maleness and femaleness is a blessing and a gift and a good and glorious thing. Now, notice in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I have to take my sweater off, so you're going to hear like a, and uh, and I'm. Thank you. So, verse 26: Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. The Bible doesn't start with the differences between men and women, but with our equality. This is the foundational truth about all humankind, all men, all women. We are created in the image of God. What does this mean, created in the image of God? Well, we we can't fully exhaust the glories of it, but there are three things that we can say. Number one, the image of God defines the essence of who we are. So we are beings in the likeness of God. In other words, unlike animals, even me, the animal lover that I am, and if you knew my wife, she was considering wearing a sweatshirt Someone gave it to her. It says, my bestie is a Westie. I'm serious. I have allowed it. I just, I don't even know what to do with it. But I kind of think it's cute, actually. But it's messed up, really. Um, so, so but, but even we, even we, the animal lovers that we are, we, we know, and please have clarity, that your animals are not persons. Your animals do not have a soul. When your animals die, they simply die. They really do, Okay. Uh, but we have a soul, number one. That's what part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We're the only ones created in the image of God. The animals uh, are not. Second, the image of God defines our function, uh, what we're called to do. Have dominion, fill the earth and subdue it. We are not only like God, we stand as God's representatives, ruling his world as royal vice-regents, stewards of his creation, And third, the image of God marks us as relational beings. Verse 27, male and female, he created them. God's a relational God, one God existing eternally as three persons in perfect love and harmony in unity. And so it makes sense that God expresses his image in a race that is differentiated. Humanity has a male kind and a female kind. And we'll see in chapter 2, These two kinds relate to each other. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was understood that the king was the 
uh, that the king of the tribe was the image of the god that the tribe worshipped. Okay? This is, this is true. In the ancient areas, it was understood that the king of the tribe was the image of the god that the tribe worshipped. And that's what makes Genesis 1 so radical. Every man and every woman, not just the king, are made in the image of the one true God. Nowhere does the Bible say that men are more in God's image than women. From its very first page, the Bible opposes the errors of sinful male dominance and subjugation that we see in a lot of cultures historically and today. If God defines us as equal in value, that forever settles the question of personal worth. Now, if we come to Genesis 2, uh, Genesis 1 is kind of showing us the Google Earth view, and Genesis 2 kind of zooms down into the Google Street view. So we're going to dive into the sixth day of creation, and we're going to see how the events unfolded. So listen to verses 15, listen to verse, verses 15 and then 18 through 24. So Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now move, move to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground that the Lord God had formed every beast in, of the field, excuse me, now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its, flesh, its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man, out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When Jesus and Paul talk about things like marriage and men's and women's roles in the church, do you know what text they cite? actually cite this text and that's significant because it lets us know that this is applicable for the church and for the world and the universe in every age it is timeless this is timeless truths about men and women and with that in mind let's notice several different things that are different between the man and the woman in this text so a couple of things number one God created the man first and put him in the garden before Eve was created that's there in the text Number two, God gave the man the authority to name the animals. Number three, God created the woman after the man and literally from the man's rib. Number four, the man names the woman. Number five, God charged the man to work and keep the garden. His name was Adam, which refers to the ground from which he was formed in Hebrew, Adamah. Number six, God made the woman as a helper fit for the man. Her name, woman, refers to the man from which she was made. And then number seven, the man and the woman correspond to one another such that in marriage they form a unity, one flesh. We're going to explore this more in coming weeks, but for now, remember the charge that God gave the man and the woman in Genesis 1. 
that charge had two related parts. Exercise dominion over the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Now, what we see here in Genesis chapter 2 is that while the man and the woman need each other to jointly fulfill God's mandate, they seem to be created with distinct strengths with regard to that mandate. In verse 15, the man works the ground and keeps or guards God's dwelling place. This leans towards exercising dominion, but he can't fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply alone. He needs the woman as his helper. It's no wonder he names her Eve or life in chapter 3 because she plays a special role in bringing about life. It is subtle, but Adam's disposition and abilities and inclinations seem to correspond to God's work of forming in days 1 through 3 of creation. He names the animals rules over them just as God named the lights in heaven and the land. And Eve's disposition corresponds more closely to God's work of filling in days four through six. It's primarily through her that the couple will be fruitful and fill the earth. Let me just summarize what we've seen so far in Genesis 1 through 2. Genesis 1 through 2 depicts men and women as equal, equal image bearers in God's eyes. With distinct strengths in fulfilling God's creation mandate, there is a leadership role for Adam in the marriage. He names his wife, and implicitly, he's therefore responsible to convey God's law to her. God gives him the law before the woman is made, and in the next chapter, God will hold Adam responsible for their sin, even though Eve sinned first. And yet the woman is the relational center of gravity for the family. We learn that a man will leave his parents and form a new family unit by clinging to her. She's the one he centers himself on. And we notice, too, that God's orderly created design is consistent with these dispositions. The physical differences between men and women reinforce these distinct inclinations. Men's bodies... This is not shocking whatsoever, but in our culture and in the particular moment we are in, it is shocking and controversial and debated, although it should not be. Men's bodies with statistically higher levels of strength tend to be more ordered to creation tending, while women's bodies are oriented to family building. And what we see here is that that difference in disposition or role in marriage doesn't equate to difference in value, worth, or dignity. Adam is the leader, but they are both equal in value, dignity, and worth. Adam is the leader, but they are both equal in value, dignity, and worth. Just a quick pause uh, for station identification. Any questions so far? I like that hat, Julia. That's a nice hat. It's helpful when it rains, you know? Keeps it out of your hair. Any questions so far? Just trucking along. It's okay if you don't, but if you have them, we've got a second. Okay, I'll give you time for questions at the end. Let's just keep rocking. Let's turn to what happened next. Uh, The fall. Tragically, Adam and Eve disobey God, and in turn, God issues a curse upon creation. Adam, who was called to work the garden, will now find thorns and thistles challenging his efforts to exercise dominion over the earth, according to 3, 17 and 18. 
He who came from the ground will still relate to the ground and draw food from the ground, but his relationship with the ground will be frustrated and he will ultimately return to the ground in death, as we see in verse 19. Okay. Similarly, the woman who was to help the couple be fruitful and multiply will now find this calling and this sphere challenged. Verse 16, to the woman, he, God said, I will surely multiply, same word as chapter 1, your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And in the next phrase, we see that she who came from the man will still relate to the man and will draw forth children together, but her relationship with the man will be frustrated. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now the word translated contrary in the ESV could also be translated toward or for. And what does that mean? Well, at a minimum... We see here that the woman's desires and the man's rule will both fall short of what God originally intended. Okay? At a minimum, we see that. Their marriage was to display loving authority on the part of the man and trusting submission on the part of the woman. But those postures will no longer feel instinctive and intuitive for fallen humanity. Women will tend to want to lead their husbands. And husbands will tend toward either being passive, as Adam was when the serpent tempted Eve, or overbearing. I think this is so significant, and and hopefully you just see this in life, okay? So women will either tend, women will want to tend to lead their husbands, and the husbands will either be passive and just lay down, or they'll be overbearing and harsh, okay? After all, not only should that maybe just ring true with you experientially why does Paul have to tell husbands to love their wives and why does he have to tell wives to submit to their husbands in Ephesians 5 I think it's because God is reiterating God's good intentions for marriage intentions with the curse which the curse has made difficult to fulfill so as a result of the fall both man and woman need to be redeemed And the hope of this passage in 3.15 is from the woman, is that from the woman there will come an offspring who will conquer the serpent. She will know pain and childbearing and death has entered the world, but a child is coming who will deal a death blow to the serpent. Now some have argued that in chapter 3 we see new gender roles in marriage that aren't how God intended them to be originally. But to the contrary, consistent with what we've just seen in Genesis 2, we will teach in this class that the fall in Genesis 3 presents a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction of new roles. Okay? Genesis 3, the fall of Genesis 3, presents a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction of new roles. Now, as Christians, we should never be surprised by the brokenness and confusion in our world. Let's just say that. And and agree with that and understand that. We should never be surprised by the brokenness and confusion in our world, especially regarding gender and sexuality. Domination, disorder, disorientation, deceitful desires, dysphoria, these are painful consequences of original sin. We have all experienced the effects of the fall. 
That means that as Christians, we can respond to all of these tragic realities with compassion and mercy as those who have likewise been marred by the curse. And for all those who taste the bitter effects of the fall, we do have good news because, praise God, you know this, the fall is not the end of the story. So we're going to move to redemption in Christ, okay? The eternal Son of God took on human nature as a man. He was born of a woman. He is the promised of the he is the promised offspring of C of Eve, <laughs> not the serpent. That would have been a misspeak. He is the promised offspring of Eve. Scripture presents Christ as the second Adam, the perfect man. As Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of God in the deepest and in the fullest sense. He is the image of God. He offered his life as a sacrifice, rose from the grave, and calls men and women alike to repent and believe in him. Those who trust in him are made a new creation and united to him. So, now that Christ has redeemed us from the curse, what does the New Testament teach us about living as men and women? Galatians 3.28 says, There is no male and female... For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, just like in creation, neither sex is more spiritually worthy. Both men and women are heirs of redemption, part of the body of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. In the church, men and women serve each other. Now, some have taken this text and said that there's therefore no legitimate distinction in God's kingdom between male and female. But just because our sex has no role to play in our salvation, that doesn't mean that we somehow become genderless beings. Even as Paul will continue to address Jews and Gentiles as such, even though our ethnic and religious backgrounds contribute nothing to our salvation. No, no, no. What we see in the New Testament is that Christ's work does not obliterate role distinctions. It redeems them. Okay? It's very key. Christ's work in redemption does not obliterate gender distinctions. It redeems them. Yes, male and female are one in Jesus Christ. But in Ephesians 5, let's, uh, let's not only focus on one text, right? <laughs> in Ephesians 5, under the new covenant, God calls wives to submit to their husbands, and he calls husbands to love sacrificially. In 2 Timothy 2, we see that only men are authorized to exercise authority in the church and to teach the gathered congregation. In the redeemed community, then, redeemed male leadership does not oppress but bless as men and women endeavor to express their common humanity according to God's original complementary design. Well, what about when we come to the, the very end of the story? I think this is, this is interesting and unique and helpful. When Christ returns and believers dwell with God in the new heavens and new earth, what happens then? The Bible describes that day as a day of new creation, Romans 8.21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Jesus teaches that human marriage will be no more in the new creation. We will all be married to Christ. I don't know how that is going to work, but it is. I trust God for this, right? Um... Jesus teaches that there will be no more human marriage in the new creation. We will all be married to Christ. But gender was God's good gift in the original creation. 
And we can infer then that in the new creation, we will live as glorified, gendered people. Why do I say that? Because Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will all receive renewed bodies, but we will still be ourselves. There is a continuity of identity. And that makes perfect sense, don't you know? After all, Jesus was and still is what? A man seated at the right hand of God in his resurrected body. And on that day, we will perfectly bear God's image. It will no longer be distorted. He created us in his image as male and female. We will bear his image perfectly in the new creation. Therefore, it seems that the beautiful gift of gender will continue eternally. So that is going to be a glorious day for us as gendered people. The curse will be totally undone. There will no longer be any conflict between men and women, nor any internal tension about the gender God has given us. And yet on that day, the focus will not be on us or on our manhood or on our womanhood, but on the perfect God-man, our perfect bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's an overview of a lot of material much of which we're going to cover more in depth in the coming weeks. As we look ahead, let me summarize our class this way. There are some Christians who have argued that men and women shouldn't play any different roles in the marriage or in church. This position is called egalitarianism. Just write it down if you're a note taker. Egalitarianism. That is the position that men or women shouldn't play any different roles in marriage or in the church. Egalitarianism. The vast majority of Christians throughout history, however, have affirmed that male and female were created by God as equal in value, essence, and dignity, but also distinct in dispositions and in roles. This position is called complementarianism today. Complementarianism today. So men and women are equally different, are, are equal, though different, and they have different dispositions and disp different roles, specifically in the home and in the church. Complementarianism. So egalitarianism, complementarianism. That is the view that the elders of this church hold, the view of complementarianism. Uh, that's what we've seen already in this brief overview. It's descriptively speaking, at least, that's what we've seen. God created men and women with distinct complementary traits, inclinations, dispositions, which should be embraced by all men and women everywhere with wisdom and sensitivity to one's culture, sphere, or setting. We've already seen that. Prescriptively speaking, men and women have distinct roles to play in the family and in the church. And again, these roles are designed to complement each other. We're teaching this class not just because we think the Bible is true on these matters, but because, this is hugely necessary to say, but because the Bible is good. The Bible is good, and it is for our good. And of course, like all good things, Scripture's teaching can be misunderstood and misapplied, but it's what God has ordained, and therefore it brings life, health, and joy. I can attest to that in my own life, and I'm sure that you can attest to that in yours as well. So, brothers and sisters, let me just go back to what we were just considering with the new creation and encourage you to keep the end in sight as we go through this class. God in his wisdom has made you a man or a woman, but we can never earn our way into the new creation by being perfect men or women. When it comes to biblical manhood and womanhood, we have already failed the test. We must trust the perfect man who by his death 
makes a way for us to be adopted into God's heavenly family. And on the final day, we will live out our manhood and womanhood perfectly as God intends, only because of his mercy, only because of his grace. Amen? Amen. What questions do you have? It is time. I have a question. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there'll be, if you look, in fact, on the on this, manhood and biblical femininity, part one, part two. We'll cover that. Other questions? Don't make it be like a painful share time. This can be a glorious and exciting time of Q&A. Don't try to make it stump the chump. Uh, That would be awkward. But any honest and good questions you have, I will try to field an honest and good heart. We're going to need to serve coffee. I can see that. Nothing tonight? Okay, let me make a plug for you. Uh, My plug for you... If you have older kids, is to have your kids come uh, because they're not going to get this. Uh, they're not going to get this anywhere. Okay, Your kids are not going to get this. Uh, and this is really foundational to how we live a lot of life. And so if you have older kids, have them come. It's going to be really good for them. Kristen? I mean, they're not... I'm sorry? Yeah, what I mean is that they're not going to hear it from any other source. So if they're in school and just the world as we know it, this this God-glorifying vision of biblical manhood and womanhood is not going to be given to them. Uh, the only thing they're going to see is your example, which is massive, but they may just view that as you doing what you were taught and doing your thing. And they may not get a broad and biblical vision for it, that it's not merely just what worked for you, but they, they may not come to understand that it's actually God's call for all. Okay, So your, your example is unbelievably huge, but in their minds that may not be enough. They, they need to have a positive vision given to them from the scriptures to show them that's not just what works for you all, but it's what God calls, calls us all to pursue. So just a little plug. Steve, then Renee. Uh, with younger kids, are there particular ones where I should find a sitter ahead of time? I will try to give you a heads up. Not that I... 12, but that's just a guess. But uh, it, would you, would you uh, think that with content in this class that uh, sitters should be considered earlier than perhaps week 12? Not to my knowledge. No, I don't think so. I'll try to give you a heads up if I think of something that's going to be really racy. Renee?
Yeah. They're, they're being told that love is love and family is whatever you define it to be. So they, they need to understand that love is what God says love is and family is whatever God says family is and be given a grand and positive vision for it, not just a negative one, but a grand and positive and glorious vision. Part of the reason I want you to continue to come because it's grand and good and glorious. And sometimes as Christians we can get on our heels about some of these things that are a bit culturally sensitive or a lot culturally sensitive. We can get on our heels, keep our head down and just try to miss bullets instead of just happily stepping up and saying, yes, this is exactly what we believe and it's for our good. Um, Which is good for evangelism and good for people's souls for us to go ahead and do that. Any other questions? Yeah. Because I think words are being manipulated a lot, and it's, and it's changing a lot, so it's hard to know what's what. Yeah, you, tr- you control the language. You, you kind of control the narrative. That's very true. In fact, I just, I just learned uh, this past week, I did not know this, but what cisgender is referring to. Um, cisgender, interestingly enough, is, is referring to the biblical position that, that there is only male and female. They had, to, they had to put something before it so that they could drive it into the, the tree and wreck it um, because no, cause they, they say gender isn't just male or female, so they have to put something in front of it, uh, cisgender. So that's that view that gender is only male and female. They had to add a word to it in order to, to describe it you know, the way they want to describe it, which is so interesting. So I didn't know what cisgender was until just this past week. I was listening to Al Mohler. Uh, his uh, daily podcast called The Briefing, uh, and he defined that. I did not know about that. Uh, binary, by the way, gender binary, that just is reflecting the reality that, that gender is an either-or. It's not a continuum or a fluid notion. You are either male or female. You may not feel that way. That would be gender dysphoria, confusion about your gender or desire to be a gender other than the one God has given you. That's gender dysphoria. But the reality that gender is binary is just reflecting the reality that gender is either male or female. Does that make sense? And we will talk about those things as we go. And ask questions as we go too. Any other questions? Sarah? Yes? We are recording. It will be on the website, so you can listen. Let me close this in prayer. We will see you next week. Wasn't this morning fun? It was really fun to hear everybody sing. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word, which gives us a good and glorious and positive vision for all things, including, and especially right now, confusion of our culture, uh, the reality of biblical manhood and womanhood. Please teach us, Father, and please may we revel and glory and delight in this good gift that you've given us, gender, and help us to live out these things. Uh, Surely it will be a blessing uh, to to each of us. Surely it will be a blessing to our children if we have children in the home. 
Surely it would be a blessing to our church. Surely it will be a blessing to those that we are around. Uh, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.